Hey, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, 7 through 13 this morning uh, as we continue our study through Christian worship, kind of what that looks like, what it is, how it affects us. I want to do things just a little bit differently. Let me read the passage for us and I'm going to take us back, just uh, spend some time in prayer corporately, and then we'll walk through this passage um, at the end of that prayer. So let me, let me read uh, 1 Corinthians 8, 7 through 13, then we'll spend some time in prayer together. Paul writes and says, However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who having knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Let me pray for us. Father, we come into your presence in song. We do so in prayer. and uh, We recognize, lest your spirit move, we can learn a lot, we can apply some, but our lives cannot be fundamentally changed. And so we come to you, God, this morning, people in a variety of different states, some ready to hear a word from you, some seriously frustrated and angry with you, some frustrated and angry with themselves. And so, God, I pray that your spirit would meet us at the point of where we are, but that we would all leave changed, renewed, with our allegiances set to follow you, our hearts tethered to you. As we encounter your word and we encounter its challenges to our hearts, that we would submit our hearts to you, God, that those situations in this room and outside this room that would seek to distract Seek to keep us from hearing a word, allowing your spirit to do a work in our lives would be hidden from us, that you would take those sources of distraction away from us, and help us to focus on you and, and what your word is saying to us in this time. Yet as we come in, we recognize that we are not the only church in this community, and we are so thankful for that. And we're thankful that we have other brothers and sisters gathered in the many churches of our community doing phenomenal ministry for your kingdom. Seeing men and women come to know you, pushing back darkness. And so, Father, we want to pray for our partners in this community that through our collaborative efforts working together that we might begin to see revival well up in this community. So we want to pray for the members of the churches that they would be in, in one heart and one mind working together for the pronouncement and the expansion of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And God, I want to pray for their pastors this morning, that they would take heart in your sure word. And they would take heart and have confidence in the work that you are bringing to an end. That you might be glorified, that men and women might come to know you. And that through that we might see change begin to take effect, take hold. That our community might be impacted eternally through lives dedicated in service to you. And we submit these things to you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. 
So 1 Corinthians 8, 7 through 13, maybe you read through it this week and you're thinking, what in the world? I haven't eaten meat sacrificed to an idol in a while. I think I'm going to take a bye week. But you showed up anyway because you knew babies would be here. And so let's just kind of begin to kind of unpack it and look at it in terms in some sense of what it is and what it's not. Right? I think there's a simplistic way to look at it that I'm going to try and encourage you not to do. Because I think what the passage is teaching at the heart of it is, is there's some activity that they're engaged in that is a significant impediment, an obstacle. He refers to it as a stumbling block. It's keeping people from knowing Jesus. That when they see them engage in this behavior, this pattern of life, it makes them follow that instead of following Jesus. And so there are any number of things that we might have said in our lives that, that could be stumbling boxes, stumbling blocks to other people, but these things are nothing more than an annoyance or a personal distraction. What he's talking about are things in our lives that when somebody sees them and somebody follows them, they keep that person from coming to know Jesus. In essence, if you're a Christian and you are here today, your life should be a roadmap of sorts to the people around you. That if I walk up and I see Dee or I see Bob or I see Cassie or I see somebody else, I see Philip, I should be able to find Jesus through watching you and modeling my life after you. Modeling the things you set down and the things that you do, the things you don't do. It should lead me, if I follow the pattern of your life, closer to Jesus. And so we begin to ask ourselves, if somebody were to look at my life, if someone were to follow my life, would it lead them to be more like me or would it, in fact, lead them to be more like Jesus? And that seems to be kind of the crux of the issue they're dealing with here. You get into verse 7, and he says, however, not all possess this knowledge. And so we have to ask the question, what knowledge is he talking about? Exactly, uh, what don't people possess? What is this uh, that Paul is talking about? Well, if you were here last week and you've remembered and not slept since then, you'll remember that he had this discussion in 1 through 6 about knowledge and love. And so within their community, uh, people were, had a tendency to really emphasize that knowledge was where it was at, that it was this thing that we had to have, and where I am in society is determined on knowledge. And so they, they heaped up the importance of that, and the knowledge particularly that was devastating in their community is found in verse 4. And look what it was. It was, therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and there is no God but one. So there in Corinth, the regular part of the routine, regular part of the community, somebody would go out and they go to the temple where they worship Apollo or they worship Poseidon and they go in and they walk past the altar and they'd walk on down into the dining room and they would eat food that had formerly been used and formerly been in the service of offering up a sacrifice, an offering to a, a God other than the one true God. But there are people in the Christian community who look at that and they said, ah, we know that Apollo isn't real. We know that Poseidon isn't real. And so really all I'm doing is eating some tasty food. There's nothing more significant than filling my belly. There's nothing more significant transpiring in this than eating food and spending time with people. But Paul comes and he says, look, not everybody knows this. Not everybody recognizes that this is, when, this is what's transpiring. He says, but some through their former association with idols, eat food is really offered to an idol. So the situation is you have these people who grew up worshiping Apollo, or they grew up worshiping Poseidon, or they grew up worshiping any god out of this kind of pantheon and polytheistic uh, setting and environment. And whenever they went into the temple and they sat down and they began to eat, and they weren't just saying, oh, this is some delicious filet mignon, or oh, I love steak tartare, especially with an egg on top. What they would say is all praise to Poseidon. 
They weren't able to separate their eating of this food from their worship of a false deity. And so Paul writes, he says, look, not everybody knows this. Not everybody's aware of this. And when these people engage in this way, when they do this, this is what happens. He says their conscience being weak is defiled. Notice it's important here. He says their conscience is weak. Paul writes and he addresses it automatically. He says, this isn't a right understanding. This isn't where we all want to end up. This is a weak understanding. But because they were formally caught up in this manner of life, because this is what they did, because this is who they are, when they do this, they worship a false god. And so it's wrong. And and, and they primarily do this because they haven't either heard that these gods don't exist or they haven't appropriated that knowledge. You know, there's a difference between knowing something and appropriating that knowledge for us. We can know a terrific number of things, but until that knowledge becomes application in our lives and it affects our behavior and affects the way we think, it doesn't mean anything. I know that there are some things that I eat that aren't good for my heart, but God made them so tasty I can't help myself, right? And so I eat these things, and I know that that exercise is better for me, but television is easier. And so sometimes I find myself saying, oh, I could go exercise, or I could do... Oh, here, come sit down. This is good. Hey, would you grab me a snack on the way? Something tasty. Carrots aren't tasty. Oh, you have ranch? Tasty enough. Right? Right? And so we know that until we begin to put that application and make it real for us, then we can be adversely affected by it. And so what he tells them is, look, there may be something deficient in the way they have applied knowledge, but when they engage in eating this meat, when they eat this food, they aren't separating who they were from who they are. They are engaged in idol worship. And so we begin to recognize that it's really clear how they might see themselves in splitting into the the, the people who have arrived and the people who... Maybe they're on the way, but the people who are, there's something deficient in them and in their Christian walk. And so we see it's really easy how they would split and say, okay, well, the people that God really loves, the people that God's really proud of are those people who can eat this food offered to idols. And the the people who God looks at and he's ashamed of or he's disappointed in, they're the folks over here and they can eat food offered to idols. And so they begin to, to break and divide Christianity between those who can eat and those who can't eat. And so Paul says, no, we can't have that. We can't have that. You need to understand something. It is neither, uh, verse 8, it is, it is neither the eating or the not eating that makes us better off. He starts and he says, food will not commend us to God. So Paul looks at it and he says, look, eating that food is an amoral act. Do you understand the difference between moral and, and immoral? The first time somebody said amoral, I was like, whoa, man, it's not just immoral. It is amoral. It is super bad. But he's talking about, in essence, things that are neither right nor things that are wrong. They are neutral, not gray. He's not talking about things that we look at and say, oh, I don't know if this is right or wrong. This is gray, but things that have no moral bearing. And so there are any number of things that we can look at and say, you know, I see how this could be used for good. I see how this could be used for bad. Television. Man, I had friends growing up that their parents looked at it and they said, television is of the devil. And so they wouldn't let their their kids watch TV. And then they just kind of kept them from watching any television. And eventually TV made its way into their home and and they would watch movies. And this is back in the days where you could dub over VHS tapes. And so you're watching the movie and it's going to say something really kind of G-rated. But dad would dub over it and all of a sudden you're not nice. (laughs) And I'd lean over and say, he said jerk. And the version I have at home, 
He did not say not nice. Right? Because we begin to kind of make this list implicitly within our minds of things that we have to do and God is more well pleased. Or if we, if we uh, do, then God is ashamed of us or disappointed at us. And so we begin to create strata of layers of Christianity. I think one of the things that we find in this is, look, God does not call us to designate what these things are for other people. So God hasn't set you down as the person who gets to go around and tell everybody else what behaviors they can and cannot engage in. When we do that, we almost tell the Holy Spirit, hey, look, step aside. I can work in John's life much better than you can, and John cannot do this. What John needs is a healthy diet of vegetables and exercise. He does not need these things over here. So you step aside, Holy Spirit. Take a break. Let me have John for a while. Well, growing up, this was like over and over again. Uh, we just you know, announced to you that we're going to let you go out and trick-or-treat. The churches I grew up in, they would have said, you're going straight to hell if you let your kids trick-or-treat. That this is just kind of like, you let your tr- kids trick-or-treat, the next thing you know, they're going to worship uh, witches, and they're going to be casting spells, and they're just going straight to hell. You're sentencing them to life with Satan if you let them eat delicious candy. Well, was kind of how I took this. We recognize that's just completely ridiculous. Now, it may be for you in your conscience, you say, we can't do this. Look, my family grew up in occultism. When we go out and people are, are engaged in this way, I can't separate these things in my mind. I can't lead my kids down this path that caused me so much heartache, that caused me so much woe. Or alcohol. Alcohol, if you read through the Bible, there's a clear indication that we cannot drink to the point of intoxication. And if you're under 21, you're breaking the law and you shouldn't do that either. Both of those things are sin. But the repeated testimony within Scripture is that alcohol within moderation is morally neutral. It just is. But we find that this kind of roils against, in some sense, a southern expectation of what is right. In another sense, it kind of roils against the devastating effect that we see alcohol bring. And both of those things can be true. If you drink to excess and to intoxication, You're going to make bad decisions. You're going to hurt the people around you. If you are an alcoholic, you absolutely should not drink. If you have an alcoholic in your family, you should not drink around them. But we can't give a prescription for the the abstinence and just this nobody's allowed to drink anywhere. Because in reality, mostly what that makes us is a bunch of people that never drink together. (laughs) That, okay. Okay. (laughs) <laughs> that wasn't really meant to be funny. <laughs> but you recognize it is because you see that, right? You show up at some function and you see somebody drinking and you're like, oh my goodness, they drink. And then you remind yourself, I do too, but not in front of them. <laughs> or you show up and you know, somebody gifts you a bottle of wine and you're like, what do I do with this? What if somebody sees this? Right? I mean, good night. The list of things that we could go on and on... Uh, I mean, Baptists, there's, there's a reason for the joke that Baptists are against everything, right? Uh, we don't dance because it leads to sex. We don't gamble because, well, that, that's just not a good thing. That's just not gamble. But, we, you know, we don't, we don't do these things. It's we're, list, we're, we're list-oriented people, and we don't do certain things because we think it's going to make God most unhappy. Recognize when it comes to amoral behaviors, and this is a terrific thing. You're going to talk about it in your life groups. There are things that when you first came to faith in Jesus that you could do that you can no longer do. Because as your heart gets closer to God, you recognize these are things you can no longer do. And for some of you, that's to drink alcohol. 
For some of you, that's to watch television. For some of us, that's the way we spend money. For some of us, that's the way we spend time. Because as he owns an ever-creasing measure of our hearts, there are things that just don't hold our interest, they don't hold our affections, and we don't want to do those things anymore because we want to give ever-increasing measure of our hearts to him. And there's nobody that can create a list for you, and there's nobody that can tell you what those things are, but it's a life lived in full submission to Jesus that sees us approaching these things. But when it comes to Christian liberty, when it comes to matters of the conscience, look at what Paul goes on to write. He said, look, clearly I understand there are those of you in this place, in this church in Corinth, that can eat meat sacrificed to idols, and it doesn't, it doesn't lead you to worship them. But he says, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Note that it is an impediment to faith. It's something that when they see you do it, it leads them further away from Jesus. And so he's asking them he said, to investigate their lives and in some sense to know the people around them. What things am I doing that is leading somebody away from Jesus? And what could those things be that I should cut out of my life in service to my weaker brother or sister? Now, he's only talking about in this passage food offered to idols, but certainly there are other things in our lives that could. And so notice that, that even in this, even in this pursuit of kind of self-limitation, that this is something that Jesus himself has given uh, us a path to follow. In Matthew 20 and 28, he says, Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom of many. When Jesus came in the flesh, he did so in a, a, a service of fashion, a, a fashion of service. He did this in the way is to come in, and he rightly could have called us all to follow him. He rightly could have called us all to do uh, kind of fealty towards him, to bow down all the time before him, and he could have commanded everyone around him to fall at his feet anytime he ever wanted to. But you get into Philippians 2, and it's this wonderful statement of his release and of his submission and of this idea that he didn't make these rights that were his something that he insisted on. But he lowered himself. Philippians 2, starting in verse 5, says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, that gives us an understanding and idea that we can do this because Jesus is in us. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So when we begin to ask the question, like, what things am I doing? What is the roadmap of my life? Where is that leading people? And what things might I do or should I do? Should I get rid of in my life to help other people come to Jesus? Recognize this. There is no out of bounds. There's no out of bounds. There's no area of your life that you get to cleverly carve off and put over here and say, I... I'm willing to, to kind of take a back seat. I'm willing to, to live my life as a benefit to others, but I'm, I'm not willing to let this go. I'm not willing to remove this. I'm not willing to subject this to anything. I'm going to hold on to this. He calls all of it. Did you notice that? Did you notice what Jesus did? He said, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. When Jesus left heaven and came to earth, he took on a limited form. He took on a 
broken body. He took on this, this fleshly body. He trapped the infinite expanse of his ability into his finite creation. And he looked at everything that was his by virtue of the fact that he is God. And he said, that's not something to be greedily held on to. That's something to divest myself of. That's not something to make uh, an opportunity to use. Why? He says, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus came to serve. Jesus came to serve, and he calls us likewise to serve. And the verse continues and says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. In submitting your rights and privileges, you have an opportunity to follow in the path in the leadership of Jesus. But it's quite difficult. It's quite difficult because I think we have this sense of personal autonomy that we don't particularly appreciate it when it's violated. We have this sense of these are my rights and to, to release them for someone else and for their benefit, I'm just not sure it's worth it. I'm not sure it's worth it. I'm not sure my life would make a whole lot of difference in this person's life. I just got to be honest. I just don't know if they're worth it. Recognize that the same issue of finding the worth in others is what Paul begins to move and to address. And so he crafts this scenario to show them how when people look at you and they see the way that you live and they see the way that you engage, they're following that. Look at verse 10. He says, For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, they see you living the normal course of your life. He said, Will this person, when they see you doing that, not also be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? He says, When this person sees you doing this thing that you have the right, that you have the privilege to do, are you not doing damage to your brother or your sister in Christ? Are you not doing damage to your brother and sister in Christ? So he wants us to awaken ourselves, to awaken our minds to the reality that our lives are not to be lived for our selfish expanse and privilege. But they're meant to be lived, they're meant to be poured out for the benefit of those that we encounter, the benefit of those who watch us, maybe even from a distance. And on the basis of this, it calls us to radically alter. But look at how he seeks to call us into caring. He says, verse 11, and so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. Some people, if they watch the way that we live our lives, we could be leading them into ruin. And so he doesn't just say, look, they're, they're mildly offended or you lead them off course. He says, this brother for whom Christ died, this is someone that Jesus cared for and you're consigning them to death. And so you look at it and say, look, this is why I don't go to the temple and eat meat anymore. This is why I don't do this. Well, almost nobody in our community does this, right? Because we don't formally have places that we recognize as temples to offer sacrifices to idols. Instead, we have something that's so much more insidious, it's so much more difficult to discern, that your job and the way you live your life could actually absolutely be an idol. Just imagine this. Imagine you work, at, uh, you work at a bank, you work at a law firm, you work at a job, and you're giving all of your time to doing this, and you have a coworker, and you begin to share the gospel with them. 
and they see the car you drive, and they see the house you live in, they hear you talk about your vacations. And they love all these things, and they do all the same things. They're not a follower of Jesus, and so they set their hopes and dreams on attaining to the next level of success, financial stability, and family, and all these various things. These really are the idols of our culture. And everybody in our community, in our neighborhood, this is what they worship. They wouldn't call them idols, and they wouldn't call them deities. But in actual fact, by the way they live their life, there are. And they see you right beside them, and they see you working the same hours and making the same sacrifices for this job, and they see you talking in the same ways about your vacation, and they see you talking in the same ways about your family. You've been sharing the gospel with them, or somebody has, and they come to faith. Now they come into work, and, and what we recognize is that they've not created this, this incredible distinction in their life for working unto the glory of God and working unto their, their own desires. So we've introduced into their life kind of this tacit syncretism, syncretism, having more than one God at the same time, or the blending and the melding of faiths together. And this is what we do. And it's so incredibly difficult. Because we want to be people who work hard and not be lazy. We want to be people who pour ourselves into our families and raise vibrant kids who go on to change the world. But that's not our ultimate hope. And it's not what we set our dreams on. And so if we lose our job, if we lose our families, and, and, and the world thinks we're a complete and utter failure, it doesn't phase us. Because that's not the thing we set our ultimate hope and joy on. And the thing in my mind that I haven't fully reconciled and I'm not really sure how to, how to deal with, and the thing I think that we've got to constantly struggle with, is that we're so incredibly pronounced in the way that we live our faith in our workplace and with our families and at sporting events and all these other various ways. Not the obnoxious person that wears the t-shirt that says, you're going to hell, read the back if you want to know how to change that but the person who lives such a beautifully vibrant picture of faith in Jesus that people can't help but know that you're a Christ follower and they can't help, <clears throat> they can't help but avoid how to alter their eternal destiny by virtue of spending time with you. And so there's never an opportunity for the question to enter into their mind that so-and-so lives her life for this vacation or so-and-so lives their life for this family and this family to be happy or so-and-so lives their life for this monetary reward. <laughs> Or the retirement where you do nothing but play golf. But so-and-so lives their life. They leverage their time. They leverage their finances. And they lead their family in the passionate pursuit of Jesus. And they do that day in and day out. And this is the thing consistently I hear from them and see in them. Do you see the difficulty there? In some sense, it would be so much easier if it was meat sacrificed to idols. I just wouldn't go to the temple anymore. I just wouldn't engage in these anymore. But the idols are firmly integrated into our community. So the first thing we have to do is to care for this person. This is the brother for whom Christ died. And for those of you who don't place a high uh, value or weight on the people around you and the people at, at your work and the people you commute with and the people that you do life with, well, I mean, you're sinning, but let's just get on to it. But look what he says. He says, thus sinning against your brothers. You're like, well, I'm okay with that. Wounding their conscience when it's weak. Well, I'm okay with that. You sin against Christ. Well, I'm, I'm suddenly not okay with that or I feel like I shouldn't be. You can't sin against your brother without also sinning against Christ. 
You can't have a fracture in that relationship without also introducing a fracture in your relationship with Jesus. Do you see that? This is why as a people we need to be quick to receive and extend forgiveness over and over again. If you are a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, recognize this. You have been forgiven something you could never hope to pay for. The Bible tells us that you have transgressed against God's holy law. And God offers you forgiveness of sins in the person of Jesus. And as Philippians told us, he left everything, abandoned every every privilege to come and to die so that you might know him. And this is the same course of walk that God calls us to follow in, a life lived in service to others so that we would be broken at the thought of sinning against our brother or sister, that we would be broken against the idea that we would wound their conscience, that it would really plague us and bother us. We wouldn't trivialize the liberties of our life and how those affect the lives of the people around us. And that we'd recognize the ultimacy that when we sin against the people around us, we are ultimately sinning against Christ. Look at the beauty in verse 13. Paul, who had every right and privilege as an apostle, to say, look, this is a a Corinthian problem. You need to figure it out. I'm not going to be burdened by your issues. I'm not going to be burdened by your weaknesses. Look at the way he addresses it and he calls them into application. He says, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Do you love the people in your life enough to cut out something of value today for their benefit? Do you? Do you love your casual acquaintances enough today that if you were to know that there is some impediment to them coming to know Jesus that you'd be willing to cut out or willing to introduce and have a strong sense that we are much more at home being those people who go around and point out things other people should cut out. You need to cut out alcohol because that's going to keep somebody from coming to faith. You need to cut this thing out of your life because that's going to keep someone coming to faith. But the point of application is internally. It's incredibly instructive that Paul doesn't turn the Corinthians over to police the morality of those in their midst. But he turns it over to themselves. And he gives us this incredibly uh, applicable step of how he's going to work and how he's going to operate with those in Corinth. But my question for us is, when somebody looks at the roadmap of our life, they look at your education, they look at the decisions you've made, they look at the way you lead your family, What things in there are you willing to release? And who do you get to need to who do you need to get to know at a deeper level to even know where to start? I can tell you, God has put in place people in your lives for their benefit and for his glory. They have a story and you need to know it. And knowing their story, be moved by compassion to willingly surrender the rights and privileges that are yours as a child of the king, so that in surrendering them, 
the roadmap of your life might lead them to Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that you would guide and direct us. Help us not look for the simple things that are obvious, but for the deep things that are helpful. Change us, fashion us, cause us to care. Cause us to care for the person that we have been overlooking for months or for years. We see them struggling. We recognize that we're engaged in this behavior and cause us to let it go. Or just cause us to ask questions of the people around us, our brothers and sisters in faith. Say, what things am I doing that cause you to struggle, that make you want to fall away from Jesus if you were to follow me into this? Father, you are good and do good. Cause us to be like you. Bring people to know you through our efforts, through our lives, lived out in obedience to you. We pray these things in your son Jesus' name.